The following podcast is brought to you by Vite Ramen. Use offer code BROKENSILICON to get 10% off tasty, healthy, and easy-to-make ramen orders at the link below. Or go to cdkeyoffers.com and use code BROKENSILICON for 30% off Windows keys and die shrink for 3% off every other key on the website. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Broken Silicon, a gaming hardware podcast. I am your host, Tom. And today I wanted to, or I'm going to, I wanted to in the past, now I'm going to talk with someone that's just getting into game development. I feel like this is an angle that we haven't really hit really at all yet, actually. It's kind of the perspective of someone just starting out now. And I met this person actually at the Carolina game show, what is it, already four months ago? Three three months ago, I guess. Um, God, this year is going by so fast. But um, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll let you uh, I'll tell every tell our listeners, you know, who you are, uh, you know, as much or as little as you want about your name and where you're from and uh, what made you want to start in game development. All right. So my name is Zachary Gadera. I, I run Duck Noir here on the East Coast. Basically, we make cute little indie games. <laughs> What made you start working on games creatively in general? Like, I remember I used to do some oh, of yeah. that. I never got into making my own actual game. But, like, when I was a kid, I had, like, a Rayman, uh, if anyone remembers that game, uh, level editor that I played. Like, like what, when did you first started making things in games creatively? Like, like how young were you or what game was it? I'm honestly curious. Honestly, I've, I've been making... If we define game a little loosely I've, I've been making games for basically since i was a little kid mm -hmm. i want to say i technically i started with little big planet and all those level editor types of games like minecraft i i, I would always annoy my friends like here's this mini game i made yeah and here's exactly how you have to play it and if you do <laughs> it don't deviate from this strict rule set when all they wanted to do was play Minecraft or something. Yeah, I mean, I remember... Different. <laughs> I can honestly say that I did the same. I played a lot of the first Little Big Planet, like a lot, actually, <laughs> and a lot of the second one as well. And, and it's funny, some of my early levels were typically, I guess you would say creative, but only worked when I played them because if I let any <laughs> of my friends play them, they would do something I didn't expect them to do. And then I go, oh, no, you're not supposed to do that. And they're like, how am I supposed to know I'm not supposed to do that? <laughs> made the level, right? Yeah. That, that's honestly one of the things about interactive media as well is, you know, you ha it has to be not only interactable, but it has to be able to, of course, accept any use case, which is hard for a little kid to understand. <laughs> right. Yeah, it teaches you a lot about even limited, although I guess I've seen people do some crazy things with Little Big Planet, um, even the limited like game creation and something like that, it teaches you to really see things through other people's eyes and really make you realize that not everyone thinks the same way you do. Yeah. 
Well, so you 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 worked. What I'm I'm curious. Then what's the? Uh, it literally is just curiosity. I imagine some of the earlier levels had more issues than later ones. Like eventually, is there an interesting one you made though, and a little big planet that you were pretty proud of? That's an interesting question. It's been a, it's been a while since I've actually looked yeah. into my old little big planet levels. I I do remember getting more competency as time went on. I, I remember I remember there being some kind of like what was it like a blaster kind of thing there there was something you could grab onto and you could manipulate the thing that you grabbed onto i remember making like a sword fighting one where there was like a bar there and i could kill people with it <laughs> and it came out a limited distance and it was kind of like almost like a fencing game or something yeah yeah i mean which it's funny that tells you i did play little big planet because i knew exactly what you were referencing <laughs> but um yeah i was just curious i mean so yeah, you did a lot of that. I think that's how a lot of people probably get started is they make like online maps and yeah. probably the first maps they make are, I mean, I played a lot of, I made a lot of maps in the game Far Cry 2 because it didn't require me to actually know anything about programming. Um, and then uh, like, when did you start being curious about actually programming a game though? And like actually doing more yeah. than making something in Halo's Forge or something, you know? Yeah, uh, that was actually... Believe it or not, or as early as middle school, that was about when I first downloaded Unity was because, you know, my my dad being being a game developer himself watched me making these levels and being and of course he's made a whole bunch of 3D models and art. He's that's kind of his thing. Um <laughs> you know, knowing, hey, uh, this is just the first step. You know, you should probably move on from this. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and, uh, you know, I guess I'm kind of curious, was it, and this is kind of just an introspective question here, was it, do you believe you just wanted to make these and it was in a game? Oh, absolutely. You're right, because, like, I think some people, right, would get in, I played with Legos a lot, and I actually did a lot more with mechanical stuff, so I went to college for mechanical engineering. I actually did more of that than the video game stuff, and no one had to tell me to do that, right? But, like, is it, was it always obvious it was games you wanted to make, create in? Because you might just be a creative person, you know what I mean? Like, was it always obvious it was games, or was there a point where you thought it might be something else? And do you think it was, how much of that do you think was like seeing your dad do that versus just no, like I want to make a little big planet level, I'm sure. And, and, and just to give well, you some perspective, not all of my friends did that, you know, so you're in good hands here. Like most mm. people don't make little big planet levels for fun. Most people just want to jump in an already made thing. Like what, what made you want to make that? And was it always games? Well, I mean, it's always been games. I've, I've mm -hmm. always loved making those I, I didn't want to make it sound like i, I didn't want to make it sound sound like this is just like my dad or some family tradition no this I'm, is i didn't think you mean did. who i am yeah, yeah but that's what that's what's curious though is like what yeah. makes you do that honestly I, video games are just such a unique medium with a lot of potential i i think even with a lot of what games have become now i don't think a lot of that potential has been tapped it's just such a unique way to tell stories normally stories you, you know you you have a character that's created within the confines of the story and then you make things happen to it but you this in a way kind of allows the player the, the person consuming the media to be a character of sorts and go through a lot of these 
changes and be confronted with ideological conundrums and stuff. And I mean, of course, that's not what I was thinking about when I was eight, mm-hmm. but. <laughs> but maybe subconsciously what, you were, right? You gravitated yeah. towards it because it was always such a unique yeah. experience versus other forms of media, right? Right. It's just, you know, it's, it's something really special to me, especially when a game really, really hits home and gets it right. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to be able to do that someday. Yeah, right. It, it is very different. Like, it, j- this is just an example that comes to my mind. Like in The Last of Us at the end of the game, making you spoilers, but I mean, guys, you've had like a decade to play it. So, <laughs> uh, you know, you, they make you choose to shoot a doctor, right? That, that is right. probably, and, and it, it hits very more close to home when you're the one pulling the trigger in a tense scene than watching it on TV, right? And, you know, yeah, it, it's, I guess I'm curious what you, I wonder if, how much you can even speak to this though, because you're, you're, you come from a family where people are very clear. I think it seems clearly creative and used to working with games. It's sometimes hard. I feel to explain to my parents, for example, who are really more creative in like a theater and that type of sense. Um, like how much they're missing <laughs> when they don't play games. <laughs> like, have you ever thought about that? Like about a third of people just don't really play video games, I would guess. And it's, they really are missing out, aren't they? <laughs> is just kind of what yeah. I want to say, you know, like on just entire ways of telling stories. Yeah, it's it's definitely really interesting. Some folks don't really get to experience certain mediums or in some cases really let themselves enjoy certain mediums. Mm-hmm. A lot of people hold themselves I don't know if it's hold themselves back so much as just not have the experience with something to to know what it is that's out there. And by extension, of course, there are a lot of people that just don't really ever get comfortable with a creative medium at all. A lot of people don't even have a creative outlet. I think that's both of those things. Those are separate things Mm -hmm. are sad in their own right you know i i think that storytelling and a lot of the unique ways in which video games can tell stories can help you know a little more about yourself Mm -hmm. in ways that i think a lot of people could use (laughs) right now well and it's just such a different way of being thrown into a world like honestly i one of my oldest experiences is half-life 2 the beginning of it you're on the train (laughs) you're looking around, you're going into city 17. Like this is so different that you could do similar stuff in a movie. Don't get me wrong, but like it's, it's so different when you're the one where someone's making you go through customs, you're the one looking out of the window that I I don't know. It's, it's, um, it'd be, again, it's like, if you just, someone was like, well, I watch movies and play games, but I've never read a single book. It's like, well, then you're just missing on a way of, (laughs) <laughs> telling a story, you know, that's just completely devoid of you. But I guess, you know, now that we're on this subject, let me ask you this, then. They don't really teach games in school. And I think we both seem to agree that this is just one of the main mediums of communicating. They let you watch movies in school. They, they'll, they'll have you read books. Do you think, I, I don't know what school you went to, maybe they did this, but do you think in school there are some games that they should consider having classes where you learn, and I don't mean learn like, oh, here's a puzzle. Here's how you learn algebra. I mean, like, 
you learn a thing that happened in history by playing a game. I think most games probably aren't the right choice for learning accurate things about history, but it's conceivable they could be. Do you think eventually we'll have games in schools teaching people things in literature the same way we just, oh, this, you know, now we're going to read, you know, some book, right? Like, I don't, I don't know. Like, do you think that should happen or could happen? I, I think that's, that's always been an interesting, you know, uh, argument for me because video games, of course, are a very useful medium for ma making you learn, whether it be, you know, what we're used to learning against mechanics or, you know, literal learning. I think there's a lot to be gained by exploiting how we structure game systems so that you're not just, you know, getting better with mechanics, mm -hmm. but those mechanics are also modeled after things that can be useful. And so I, I can absolutely see games being used like that to teach certain subjects. My only concern is that you really have to do that correctly. <laughs> yeah. Because there's there's been attempts at doing that, attempts that have been used. Like I, I want to say, in some places, if you're getting a boating license, they have you play this weird like mm. point and click thing that doesn't act that is weirdly narrative focused. Yeah, and <laughs> doesn't actually help you learn that well. Like, of course, it's a, a tool to be learned, mm -hmm. but in this specific game, I don't want to make this sound like an argument against this because I'm totally all for this. But, you know, it, it, if the game can mostly, if the learning part can mostly be skipped, I don't think it the tool's very good. <laughs> yeah, that's such a good point, though, because you could see like someone tried to teach World War II and then they're like making you play a shooter and then no one's paying any attention to what's going on. They're just like running <laughs> yeah. around teabagging and throwing grenades. And uh, But at the same time, you almost wonder if that's unavoidable no matter what, like how many kids in class just never pay attention to the book they're reading either. I don't know. I mean, yeah. but, but you're right. It's like doubly or probably 10 times as hard to make sure whatever teaching tool you have just doesn't just turn into either glorifying a bad thing in history yeah. Or something people yeah. just can ignore, just like they can ignore listening while you read a book or something. Yeah, but I think that's the cool thing about using games as a teaching tool. Because while games, you know, well, of course, if you don't design the game very well, it might you, a player might not be able to stop themselves. Or sorry, that's a player might intentionally skip certain like. Mm -hmm. Uh, facts you're trying to teach them but there's one thing that i don't think players can ignore you, you can use games as a medium to tell students you know here's how this feels mm -hmm. you know like one of the things that a lot of people talk about when it comes to school in general is that a lot of what they teach kind of goes away in one's mind mm -hmm. like you know you might forget what date uh the battle of gettysburg was right right but if you can successfully make a game that is short enough to be played within a class period and can give people the gist of what a historical f event felt like and why mm -hmm. of course that brings up arguments like are 
like, you know, that could traumatize a kid. That could also be used, like, you know, like, that could be dangerously close to the line of telling kids what to feel about history, mm -hmm. which is also a dangerous thing. But done right? I can see that being helpful. Uh, that could probably stay in one's minds for a little longer than a date or two. <laughs> well, I think most people will remember that was in the 1860s. Is the important thing they know the exact day <laughs> or is the important thing they know what it meant? <laughs> you know, to exactly. like the significance of it is the word I was looking for. But well, since we're on the subject of school, one of the early questions I wanted to ask you then is, and, and I don't know, like, are you in college yet or are you going to college? And if you are, why? Because you've already made oh. games on your own. <laughs> I, I recently graduated college. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I went to I, I went to a local community college that had a video game development track. So that's where I got my associates. And, and I'm curious, like, what was because again, I just don't know. Like, what was taught in this track? Was it mostly about what you actually need to know about working at a team and that type of stuff? Or like, because a lot of people just make games at home without going to college. I'm honestly curious, and I don't mean it in a, uh, uh, a critical way necessarily, right? I am curious, what are they teaching at a college for game development? Well, Personally, I don't want to give people the wrong impressions. I'm sure there are a lot of different uh, courses and a lot of different schools in a lot of different states. I don't, I can't speak for all of them, but for the one that I went to, mm -hmm. what they taught me was useful. They were straight up telling me how to use different softwares, techniques for how to do things like 3D modeling, UV unwrapping, texture atlases. Is I, especially earlier on, of course, I went into the art track mm -hmm. but you know earlier on they taught me more of a generalized set of things so i learned you know c c sharp concepts and unity at least like the basics i got to where i am now in programming at least mostly through just having to do things and figuring out a bit of a DIY way. But, you know, like, the classes, they're useful, and they teach you genuine things. They're a mix of either, okay, this this class is structured around uh, virtual environments. <laughs> That's the word. We're going to have you make, like, di dioramas and rooms, and we're going to teach you about LODs. This is what we're going to do. And then I have other ones that were, like, you know, a legal primer for how to read a publishing deal, stuff like that. Mm, yeah. All of it's useful. <laughs> right. That, okay. So, that, and it was an associate, so this was a two-year degree. Yeah. So, yeah. so it gets you in there, in and out <laughs> quickly, <laughs> right? Right. Because right. like I was in mechanical engineering for four and a half years, and that's, there's a lot of physics, man. I don't <laughs> <laughs> But um, let me move on then to a reader mail question. So Alex writes in, just like you guys can if you support us on Patreon, and he says, I've often thought about how cool it would be to have my own game on Steam. But other than tinkering around in Unreal for enjoyment, I immediately gave up any real prospects once I realized the mountain of a learning curve there was. What does or what do you have or need to decide on to enter the ring of being a solo developer versus joining an existing small indie team or even a big-time studio? Think about that question is that that last part 
that isn't mutually exclusive. I I mm. also, I, I you know I don't just make my own games. I I work on local small studios. Is that very lucrative for me? No, <laughs> but I do it. Um, what does one have or need to decide to enter the? Oh, he rings soul. I'm, I'm assuming that's referring to the the skills. Personally, I've just always been incredibly interested in all the different things involved in game development. Mm -hmm. Like, if if I get bored with, you know, programming elements, you know, just then I can look into basically anything else. I can improve on my understanding of the the principles of animation. If I get bored with animation, I can. I can just practice 3D modeling if I get tired of that. I mean, just sound design alone, mm -hmm. there's a whole bunch of stuff, like keeping things in sync and learning all the different ins and outs of like audio, audio mixers and stuff. And if I get bored with that, then, I mean, I've yet to feel like I've learned everything there is to learn about C-sharp. It wasn't that long ago that I learned about inheritance. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there's always something new. And that's why I love this. <laughs> I, I think also, now that you started to answer it, I, I thought of something to say as well, which is that I think that there's just a difference between, you know, someone who just literally wants to build a game up themselves, which isn't everyone. You know, I mean, you put a game together yourself from start to finish. Like, I assume there are parts of making that game parts of the process that were far more annoying <laughs> and less enjoyable for you than other parts, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. For me, one of the most annoying things in the world is shader language. Like, like that, having to, having to deal with that makes my, my brain turn into pudding. And, and I love programming. It's just, it makes you miss how much Unity does for you with the materials that it, and shaders that it gives you. Mm -hmm. Let me then skip ahead, since you're starting to bring up Unity. I mean, let me see here. So let me move on to, uh, to, we'll go back to some of these other things. Clean Sweep writes in, as someone whose only real game development experience is XCOM 2 mods with Unreal 3 SDK and eventually getting some code to work in Battletech, which is a Unity game, I'd like to get your opinion on the ease of use of current game engines. I've seen some pretty impressive solo efforts and plenty of asset flips, but never anyone or anything actually taking talking about the process of making a game with these engines. How easy is it for someone with little to no programming knowledge to actually make a game with these engines? Are modern engines at the same level of ease of use as what you see, what you what you get editors for HTML, CSS, or is actual programming knowledge for like C numbers or whatever always required if you want to make an actually good game on a technical level at a minimum? All right, well, hmm. firstly, what I will say is that the process of making a game now is definitely i don't know if easy is the best mm. word but more accessible absolutely yeah like the fact that there are triple a quality <laughs> game engines for free out there <laughs> you tell you if you told someone in the game development industry like a decade ago that that was going to happen they they would it would blow their mind i don't even know if a decade is enough anymore <laughs> but like you know it, it used to be that like earlier very versions of unreal i i, I want to say studios literally had to spend millions of dollars 
to be able to use them. Mm -hmm. Now, basically, anyone can download it, load Unreal or Unity or Game Maker, and just, you know, get to work. And that that is one of the best reasons why it's more accessible. In terms of specifically how easy it is with for people with little to no programming knowledge, that is a fairly is a is a different and a little more complicated question because you know for one for for one you technically don't need to learn programming you know unity has playmaker and unreal has the blueprint system but both of which are node-based systems that seems but you know whether or not you're scripting at all or using one of these node-based systems the the concepts of programming or you'll have to pick them up, and that's going to be dependent on who you are and how you think, mm -hmm. uh, among other things, of course. Clint Hoffman writes in, I've read several comments from devs and even Epic that while Unreal Engine 4 was feature-rich, it was a bit of a paradigm shift from Unreal Engine 3 in learning. UE4 also seemed to suffer from a weird optimization issue or issues that would manifest as stuttering in some games. Epic even admitted that this was a, a frequent problem. And with UE5, they say they are focusing on improving multiple areas. This includes streamlined tools, better resource optimization, inclusion of new console-specific tech while reducing dev input and creation time with things like Lumen, Nanite, skeletal animations, etc. When I review info on Unity, it really seems to be strong for mobile games and simplistic design, but it seems to require a real dedicated team to even get close to what UE5 can provide. Was your decision to use the Unity engine over Unreal Engine 5 as simple as you didn't need all that extra new stuff? Or did you have some other challenges with Unreal Engine 5 that pushed you to Unity? Because I believe you did say you used Unity for your games, right? Oh yeah, I do. Basically, why I choose Unreal isn't quite as simple as I don't need the new stuff. I, I, it has a lot more to do with how Unity is structured in general. Basically, Unreal Engine was developed to create Unreal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was created for a specific game, added stuff to it when they needed to make more games. They added more stuff to it when they, when they started leasing that stuff out to different companies. And it was relatively more recent that you know it has the more general user base now but even now it's still structured in a lot of ways for large larger teams and making the process simple for people to be doing their individual roles mm -hmm. even then it's it's very triple a focused it, it starts with pretty heavy post-processing and a, a lot going on behind the scenes before you even make a single decision with with Unity, of course, the base rendering pipeline is famously base, <laughs> to put it lightly. You, from from the start, you you have to make make certain decisions and pile on top of that base in order to get something that looks good. And I feel that that gives me more control over what I am making and makes Unity. I I, I don't know if more versatile is the right term but more versatile you know like i i, I feel like it, it's a bit of a simpler process to make a wider, wider variety of games especially with certain other features like you know uh, unreal engine isn't 
really the best engine to be making 2D games with. Mm -hmm. They're they're built-in paper 2D uh, features are quite, they're kind of limited. And I I don't, forgive me if I'm wrong, but I want to say they haven't really been working on them as of, of late. I mean, all I can say is I haven't seen a splash screen for Unreal in a 2D game in a very long time. <laughs> yeah. That's my answer. It's all I can yeah. say. Right. It, it honestly kind of sounds like you're saying that Unity is more continually malleable and versatile, whereas with Unity, I mean, whereas with Unreal Engine, you have to know what you're making from the start because it sounds like... Un- Correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I'm hearing, Unreal Engine makes you make a lot of decisions in the beginning <laughs> and organize a lot of things in the beginning. And if you decide, oh, I actually don't need this, I spent, I had to do it in the beginning to make sure it was there, right? Well, yeah, to a certain extent, that's true. Ultimately, you can make just about any game and just about any engine with the right mm-hmm. know-how, team, plugins, whatever. I'm not trying to make, I'm not trying to make it sound like any engine can or can't do anything. It's just the road to get there is going to be different. Right. I I just like Unity's road. (laughs) And Unity just, and again, I'm just trying to like make metaphors from what you're saying for the listeners. Like it sounds like Unity just kind of lets you get started and then add things as you go. Whereas again, and again, that's not to say you can't do that in Unreal, but it is to say that Unreal is quite powerful and asks you to make a lot of decisions early right and things are built on top of each other am i, am I wrong am i am i completely un- misunderstanding and you can say i'm wrong <laughs> ultimately i i would say it's less so that mm-hmm. unreal engine makes you make a lot of decisions early it's that it starts off in a very specific setup right mm-hmm. like it, it'll start with specific post-processing effects and honestly by default, fairly graphics intensive. If you're going for something more stylized or, you know, a a type of game that doesn't necessarily need that, you immediately have to go in and figure out how to, how to make it less so. And doing that isn't necessarily difficult. It's just like, it's just a difference in workflow. Mm -hmm. Reese, Reese, stop lounging around. Black Friday is right now if you know what you're doing. You see my dog Reese here is stuck in the past. She thinks you need to lose sleep and hound all of the latest deals on a single day if you want the best deals for shopping this holiday season. That, that's just simply not true anymore. If you want the best deals on Steam, PlayStation, Xbox, and Windows keys, go to cdkeyoffers.com all November to get special discounts site-wide. Use offer code BROKENSILICON to get a special 30% discount. This is the biggest discount on their website right now if you're building a shiny new Alder Lake system. And again, remember, you can use the code DIESHRING to get 3% off everything else on the website. Whether you want to get the shopping for software keys out of the way now or just get something you want right now, don't be like Reesey. Don't wait. Get all of the online keys you need, whether Windows or gaming, at cdkeyoffers.com all November. Again, use offer code BROKENSILICON for 30% off Windows keys and use the code DIESHRINK for 3% off everything else on the website. Using cdkeyoffers.com with these codes helps Moore's Law is dead a lot and it saves you money. Go to cdkeyoffers.com today. 
let me ask you this too. So Jay Stees writes in and he says, in a recent Digital Foundry podcast, they were lamenting over how some Unreal Engine games have a stutter that you literally cannot go away even by throwing it in the most powerful hardware. Jedi Fallen Order was a good example. Do you know what is causing this? Udini had a similar problem where the camera stuttered whenever you moved the entire camera. Are these issues easy to solve? Are developers just being lazy? That's what everyone's always assuming, right? Or are some (laughs) issues just so baked into the game engine that to try to solve the problem would involve so much work, you lose any advantage of getting to use solutions like Unity and Rail, but you had to do so much custom tweaks anyway. Thanks so much and glad to see guests like you on Broken Silicon. You know, and I do want to pile on this, the Dunia engine which is just a modified version of what I believe Crisis 1 used, is still what the Far Cry games use. Obviously, it's been upgraded and retrofitted and has way more features like the you know DirectX 12, uh, so on and so forth. But all the way back to Far Cry 3, I remember constant screen tearing, and it's still there. Even in the console version of Far Cry 6, <laughs> which for listeners, there shouldn't be screen tearing in a console game, really. <laughs> like, you have a specific piece of hardware where they're programming to frame times, not even frame rates. And it should run at a s- exact frame rate pretty much the whole time. And yet, I've still seen just some areas of the map where there's tons of screen tearing. And I'm like, what is this, 2010? I thought we fixed screen tearing. What is going <laughs> on? But um, yeah, I think there even was on the Xbox Series X version, which has adapt, which has FreeSync, which is crazy. But um, yeah, like, can you speak to these types of issues? Like, why does the Dunia engine have so much mm-hmm. screen tearing, probably? Why do some of these other engines maybe have a stutter that won't go away? And I, 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 don't, I haven't played Fallen Order, but I have seen that in some games where I'm just like, Guess it stutters. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, like, what, what usually causes something like that, and how is it yeah, not yeah. fixed? I, I I will say I, I've definitely noticed that stutter. In fact, there are a lot of there are a lot of quirks with Unreal Engine that I've noticed. See, even going back, like there's this one thing. I, this is a, a little off topic, but please, if you'll notice in Unreal, if you have like an object in the foreground and like something fairly re- somewhat reflective in the background. Mm-hmm. And the thing in the foreground is moving. The reflection, the reflection. Not, I don't even know if it's a reflection, but it almost feels like there's a ghost trail of the thing in the foreground. I, I even noticed this like back in like Rainbow Six, New Vegas two, or no, not New Vegas, Vegas two. <laughs> like, like there's like a ghosting of something. Yeah. If there's something of the yeah, uh, such a long time since I've played that game. <laughs> I think I remember just in general that game having a lot of kind of like ghosty movement. <laughs> yeah. Why are some of these games having a stutter that seems unfixable by some devs? It like is it that there's something they can't ever get around to doing, or is there something in the engine that they discovered too late? You know what I mean? Doesn't work well with how they made the game. Sometimes an engine will have something that works in a very specific way or you know doesn't (laughs) Mm -hmm. and you had to find workarounds for that specific thing i I remember there used to be a time working in unity when like the unity timeline which is basically just kind of like a like an animation thing where you can set up cutscenes. like i i remember having trouble pausing and unpausing that and i had to mess with time scale to make that work correctly with what I was doing specifically then. I wouldn't prop it up to either specifically the engine not getting fixed mm-hmm. or the developers being lazy. A, you know, sometimes I'm 
part of being a developer is finding workarounds for things that should work and aren't. I mean, that's that's almost how I would define programming. <laughs> almost. Because mm-hmm. if you if you write a script and it actually works, you should be suspicious. Yeah. Um, My favorite thing is when I, I don't <laughs> think something should work and it does. Like I've programmed things before oh. and I'm like, why is... I'm sure I screwed this up, but it's working perfectly every time. Uh, okay, I guess it works. You know, <laughs> that's my favorite thing when that <laughs> happens. Yeah. But, you know, at, at the other end, you really shouldn't... You shouldn't, like, immediately blame developers, especially in AAA, because, you know, whether or not a developer wants something to come out the way it does isn't always the only variable, right? Like, AAA studios are complicated machines means you have a lot of people in a lot of different jobs therefore you know from a lot of different fields thinking in a lot of different ways all approaching the same problem mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know you, you have conflicts there you you have a, a lot of creatives that really 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 want something to come out well we have features they want to implement they have bugs they want to fix and then you have the producer that's like this ships in eight months. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Either this gets redlined or we miss the deadline. <laughs> yeah. And as much as it breaks developers' hearts to have things like that, you know, just kind of to have games ship with certain bugs or to have their favorite features cut, you also have to keep in mind no games ever finished. Every every developer that's ever made a game has wanted to change it, has wanted to find some way. Like, they, they know this could be changed, this could be improved. We never really got around to doing this that we wanted to do. But it, a lot of development is just, you know, let, putting that in the backlog for a future project mm-hmm. and figuring out how to move on. <laughs> it's a delicate balance. Of course. <laughs> Yeah, I, I guess I guess I'll move on. Then I guess what, but to try to put a pin in that though, it kind of sounds like what you're saying is that it's hard to say, right? It, but that it's probably a bit of both. Both that the developer either didn't have time or couldn't sufficiently figure it out, and there is just probably something in that engine. It's it's probably both, right? It's rarely just one or the other. Right. Like there's a there's definitely a reason why most most uh. Why, why Unity and Unreal are constantly getting updated because there's there's stuff to update. <laughs> yeah. All right. So Mate Hacker writes in and he says, with regards to software development, some of the most important decisions are made very early on. From which technology solutions to use, such as hardware choices, programming languages, and the software stack are all likely, are all key to how successful a game or product will ultimately be, specifically in terms of efficiency, resiliency, scalability, supportability, and ultimately the profitability and user experience. It's true from games to software and all the way up to large enterprise solutions. So this person works on a lot of enterprise solutions, but he says, we operate in various public and private cloud environments. And while this can make choices seemingly obvious, when you're considering the differences between multiple cloud providers, you either decide to design your own solution to deal with the nuances of each situation, or you roll your own solutions to more easily run on any cloud or environment. This seems similar to how game developers would need to think about things and plan for success. So finally, my question is, 
What is your process around making these decisions that can be difficult to unwind later on? I, I thought oh. this was an interesting question, <laughs> which made hacker in the future. Please get to the get to the question quicker. Um, but um, <laughs> but no, it's an interesting question. Like, how do you avoid pitfalls and like late? And I I mean, everyone who does any type of anything with programming, editing, rendering has to deal with trying to plan ahead so you don't go, oh God, I should have done this earlier. Like, <laughs> like how do you avoid those problems and what examples of them can you even give us to, to kind of like set the stage and uh, make people think about how much thought is goes into planning a game or something? Oh man, I relate to this question so hard. <laughs> like what, well, that's probably, I think, a, a skill that you gain as you create games is figuring out you know is is going into a game making the underlying framework and then like you have to get into making content and then realize oh if i made a optimization like two weeks ago i would have saved literally like 10 hours of time ultimately i i think in terms of my process i i try to make sure that a okay when I'm writing scripts for main mechanics and stuff, I, I try to make sure that everything is versatile and, and works in a, in a system that I can see myself using and being proud of using later on. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the main reasons why some of my projects ha have been harder to make content for than others is that sometimes... You know, sometimes you have to get a feel for, for the concepts in the programming language you're using that can make your life easier. Like in C-sharp, inheritance has been really, really good for me. You can basically write concepts of a script that affect other scripts, mm. it, literally deriving from that as, what was it called, child class? That it comes in really handy. and. I think a lot of these decisions you can only really get a feel for as you make multiple games mm. and then with that experience go into a different different newer game knowing what you might be able to do if you fall into that same situation. And as a side note, I think an equally important skill isn't necessarily to know exactly how to prevent these things because you can't mm -hmm. I, I think it is to pivot when you know something's up and maybe it's... not double down on not addressing it too long but the second you know you need to do it go back then and fix it right right i i remember specifically being in a small team back in college where i was in charge and we were making a, a little 3d game mm -hmm. and basically our for our alpha we didn't have like a, an actual system for uh you know for the environment three models we didn't have like specific floors walls and ceilings we we're mm. literally just plastering planes on there like, like middle schoolers yeah and so later on i had to re i had to to pivot make documentate not only tell them hey make modular assets for the environments but making the documentation telling them exactly what settings in maya to use and stuff mm -hmm. like that even then i i missed messed stuff up and had them have like overlapping uvs 
and they had to in real time time like fix up the models they made mm. <laughs> because because you know that that was a mistake that was my fault sometimes that happens <laughs> And so you're saying it was like just knowing like when it was going wrong that no, I really do have to go in and manually fix each one. Yeah. You know, it's it's not going to fix itself. It'd be quicker for me to just do it. Yeah. Video game development is equal parts planning ahead and then figuring out that the plan sucked. <laughs> Essentially. I mean, honestly, uh, and again, just to try to relate, not to say that it's exactly the same, but like something that I think I really didn't get great at until probably half a year to a year ago, you know, because I've been doing my YouTube channel for like three or three, God, how long have I been doing it now? Almost three years now, I think, is understanding when something just isn't good enough in going back and fixing it now instead of just insisting on rolling ahead, getting it all done, and then doing it. It's like, no, dude, this whole section is bad. <laughs> like, there's no point in moving forward. And you know it's bad. You can tell it's bad. You can tell it's not going to go well, so fix it now. I think that's probably just honestly good advice for anyone, you know, that... Yeah. But I mean, I guess I'm trying to think of also his specific question, if there's anything else we could say to, I, I, I don't know if there is, is there any general advice you can give to like, a, like, you know, almost a, not to be hacky, but simple trick you can, that you, people might want to keep in mind um, while they're starting a game. Like, well, like what's something to keep mm -hmm. in the back of your head, you know, okay. to avoid pitfalls? Okay, firstly... I'm going to get this out of the way. If you're making a platformer, please, mm. for the love of God, don't make what... Make sure that you're using ray casts or something similar to figure out whether you're close to the ground and not just on collision. <laughs> <laughs> because on collision can't tell you whether or not you collided with the ground. It could be anything. Unless mm -hmm. you're doing, like, you know... Make sure that it's specifically the floor. Make sure that it's specifically the wall. That will you'll always find a way to mess that up. Use a raycast, point it down, literally draw a line <laughs> line from the player to the ground to figure out if the ground's there. <laughs> yeah. I plat I always had like rampant bugs in every platform I ever made until I figured that out. And once I figured that out, that was easy. Now, in terms of more specific ones, or mm -hmm. no, not more specific, less specific ones, we don't need to get more specific. <laughs> Ultimately, I, I think, I think one, keep it simple, stupid, a pretty mm -hmm. obvious one, you know, like, Make sure that when you're designing mechanics in general, the reason behind them existing and how they work shouldn't be any more complicated than it has to be to get to the same result. Mm -hmm. And two, of course, going into, I, I guess, making said mechanics, I, I always assume that however I'm approaching it isn't the most simple way. You know, mm. like half of actually making main mechanics is going through the documentation and 
assuming that I missed something, right? That you might need to do well or something. Yeah. Okay, so lightning round specifically Unity C sharp. Um maybe stay away from using ints for stuff that don't need to be ints. Use enums if you need like a, a number to represent like, you know, a stage or something that's more of a concept and an actual value of something. Mm-hmm. Enums are basically ints that you can assign not necessarily string value to, but something that's basically a word that you can call them. It's, it's very easy. It's, it's surprisingly easy to use and it's really useful because you don't have to put a comment right beside it. Like zero is start, one is select. You know, you can just kind of do it. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I mean, to be honest, this is when it starts getting entirely over my head. But of course, we're going to leave that in for because a lot of people who listen to this actually are working in on these engines and they will hear that and go, oh, good point. But your overall point with that, though, seems to be don't (laughs) keep it simple, stupid, but don't be stupid. Right. If I could summarize it like, okay, great. You made it. So if we want to later, we can add all of this other stuff. What is the percentage chance we're actually going to get around to doing that? If we can do it simpler, we should, but don't make it simple to the point that you entirely limit it, limit your ability to make it better if we need to make it better or a little different. Right. I absolutely agree with that. And you know, it's funny. I think one thing an example I might give is basically all shooters, or not all, but most shooters, right, all the way back to, all, all the way up until recently, were no bullet velocities. There, there was no velocity. <laughs> it was basically laser tag. Like you aim on screen and the bullet hits the target the second you press that trigger. There is no delay in the bullet moving. And I think it was funny about five years ago, Battlefield, of course, has had velocities in their games for a very long time. I think over a decade. So that's always been a thing in Battlefield. You got to time your shots, but they built their engine to do that. It's very, I mean, the amount of tweaks they have, actually, if you go and look at like the statistics of their guns online is crazy how complicated their guns are. You might even say too complicated. But there were some games I noticed five years ago where they wanted to add bullet velocity, but clearly whatever engine or setup they were using never planned to do that. And so there was no bullet travel. It just seemed like there was a delay in it hitting. (laughs) and maybe it would just arbitrarily make it lower, which is almost the same thing, but it's not because basically a car could drive in front of you. And if it doesn't actually calculate the bullet's trajectory, then that means it's just automatically going to hit them at a distance. If you aim a little above them, no matter what's going on. (laughs) And like, it was, I'm just kind of giving an example of a, a time where I think, you know, maybe you might say Battlefield makes their mechanics too complicated for some people, but then you might also see some games where you go, it's clearly they couldn't even make a better game because they never planned for it to be more than laser tag. Yeah, I mean, honestly, Battlefield is an interesting example. I, I really enjoy Battlefield. Mm-hmm. It's, I'll admit, like, the last one that I played was Hardline, but <laughs> it's I an interesting really enjoyed one to Hardline, be your last so. one. it's it's an interesting one but you know the thing is a lot of that is less so specific programming optimization is more so a a game design philosophy Mm -hmm. start with the prototype and get make the toy and make the toy fun ultimately like it 
when I'm trying to make a platformer, I, I try not to think of the bigger picture. I try to think about the player character moving around and why that should be fun. In Battlefield, I, I want to say the toy would be, you know, the first person controller, mm -hmm. making running around and moving around and fun, making shooting fun and making, I, I suppose, the ve vehicles fun to move around and do their things too. I, I think why Battlefield's shooting mechanics work, this is definitely not <laughs> this is not the full opinion because if i say it's the full opinion i'm gonna mess it up um basically i think a lot of why that trajectory is fun is one because as you said that's what the game's designed around things are balanced around that change and and so on and two you know the the velocity m makes sense and is implemented in a way that's pretty pr pretty realistic in terms of how bullet travel actually works mm -hmm. you know so it's not just there for no reason it's there for to specifically make the toy more fun <laughs> right yeah well and it's a balancing move right the, here's the thing yeah. is in some larger older call of duty games when they would have a huge map with a lot of people i mean sniper rifles were so overpowered it was hilarious because they were laser guns and they killed you in one shot one shot yeah. i mean in real life it's hard to hit someone far away because it's not a laser gun like if you make a game where every gun is infinitely accurate, like I specifically, I remember me and my friends laughing when we really started messing with the guns in just an empty room in Call of Duty 4. Like we were like, wait, the Scorpion submachine gun, which is basically a souped up machine pistol in real life, mm -hmm. is more accurate with an ACOG scope than this AK is. That's definitely <laughs> not true in real life, even Absolutely if you don't think AKs not. are. Per but a lot of video games are like that because. To, to go back to what we were saying about oversimplifying things, a lot of games don't seem to distinguish between min-max accuracy and recoil. So they have no way of making the bullets a little, not randomized, because it's not random, but, but in real life, there's a certain cone that every bullet should land within. It's called minute of angle, if anyone's into shooting, which I am. Like, and the minute of angle it's really expensive to get a gun that can get one minute of angle. It's like you hit one inch diameter within one inch diameter, a hundred yards away. It's hard to make a gun that accurate. Cause if you think about it, that's really accurate. One inch diameter, a hundred yards away. That means at 200 yards, you're hitting within two inches every time. That's crazy that we have guns that accurate. Now, a lot of games don't know the difference between that and recoil. So they can't make a gun have low recoil unless it's also hyper accurate. Because the bullet spread is just infinitely accurate in the beginning. You know what I mean? There's a lot of games oh, yeah. that make that mistake. Battlefield does not. They distinguish between maximum accuracy and increased spread as the gun moves while you're shooting. And I agree. I think that makes it more fun. Yeah, I actually am pretty interested in this topic. I'm kind of on both sides of the fence. On one hand, obviously, as someone with a pretty heavy video game development background and a fairly uh, you know, loose uh, take on this sort of thing. I ultimately, I don't feel like every shooting game needs to be an exact simulation of reality. Mm -hmm. I, I oh, think that in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, a lot of games that try to do that 
actually end up failing a little bit on the whole being fun thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I feel like if you get bogged down in all of these little nuances of the wor- world that you live in and not in, okay, here's the toy, here's why the toy's fun, I, I think you start to lose grasp on the toy and why the toy should be fun. <laughs> but on the other hand, I do really do appreciate realistic ballistics, especially when it's balanced correctly with being about how it ought to work mm. and still balancing itself in a way in which it leads for fun game mechanics in situations. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. You, you can go ahead. No, yeah. <laughs> I, I was just about to say, though, uh, which I think I was basically about to say what you just said, that I, I feel like a lot of recent games are not realistic. They're just tedious. And this is something I've been thinking about. The I, I don't know if I want to say which game I recently tried that a lot of people were recommending. It is a game with a lot of people. Not bad. It's not a Battlefield game. You know, with like dozens of, or like a hundred people, I think it is. And it's, everyone's tooting it as realistic. And I'm like, you guys do understand that realistic is not synonymous with the word tedious. That just because I have to run 10 minutes to get to the battle, just because it's hard to aim this rifle, just because like, like that's not realistic. That's tedious. I'm more accurate with a gun in real life than this guy is. Like, and it take it's easier for me to shoulder a weapon and fire quickly at a target. Granted, I, you know, I was on the rifle team in college. I've done combat shooting court. I'm not the average person, but this is supposed to be a game about a soldier. I don't think he's the average guy. He's probably above average. And you're making this game where you have to like, you can't see enemies. It takes 10 minutes to get to the battle. When you die, it takes five minutes to respawn. That's not fun. That's not realistic. Like if you want a realistic game, why don't we just sit in a trench for 10 days before we see one enemy? Because apparently that's fun to you. And and I, I, I just think there's a lot of games right now and, and I can see why it's happening because I feel like some games are just getting way too arcadey. You know, everything's becoming half of a Fortnite game, unfortunately, it seems. And so then you have this reaction where they're like, well, you know, we're not going to have any of that arcadey jump into the fun stuff. And it's realistic. But I just, I don't know if this is just turning into a rant, but I don't know if you can agree with me there that some of the, and there are realistic games that I played, like Operation Flashpoint, I thought was a realistic series where they didn't completely abandon common sense things you would do to keep a game fun. At least that I think are common sense or, I don't know if you have any opinions about like, hmm. I don't know if you played any of the, and I put it in quotes because I actually disagree half the time, the realistic shooters out there that I feel aren't even realistic. Yeah, I I definitely, I, I think I agree to a certain extent. I per, personally, I do feel like the, I, I, I feel like I am seeing a lot of what you're seeing in terms of there's, there's a pretty strange dimorphism in first-person shooter games between down-to-earth realism and off-the-wall ar- arcade shooting. And I mm-hmm. I don't think this is necessarily bad. I, I like both of those things. I-, I-, I do think that people go to these those different types of shooters for different reasons. And at, at the very least, it's-, it's important for a game to know which one it is. I... I- if you're going to be one of them, you might as well, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you probably shouldn't try to, say, push realistic mechanics into a game that's otherwise got arcade uh, gameplay. 
I, I don't think that necessarily would work very well. I, hell, I'm not even I, I'm not even that confident about that that response that I just gave because honestly, I don't even feel that great about reducing game design decisions to arcadey versus realistic. Mm-hmm. I've I've always maintained a very you know oh. A, a very prototype centric thought process as you know I, I i try to make game design decisions around whether things are going to be fun not necessarily about how things are going to be perceived mm-hmm. right which i think should be the number one thing and yeah i couldn't yeah. agree more i don't think a game has to be arcadey or has to be realistic and this is again this is where we're getting solely into opinion this is what i like i'm not saying this is the right answer <laughs> but like what i like is when a game makes everything as realistic and modeled off of real firearms. If it's, again, a modern shooter, maybe it's not. Mm -hmm. Sci-fi, it's a completely different discussion. But, like, as they can before it's not fun. So, like, if you can put a... Like, because I think everyone's like, ooh, what if there was a game where your gun jams and this and that? Okay, if you can do it in a predictable way that's not annoying. Like, I actually thought Far Cry 2 wasn't annoying because it was basically, I mean, the gun looked rusty when it was going to jam and it jammed more and more and more as time went on. It was very predictable. You could plan for it. You could, There were upgrades to get around it. There were things you had to learn to do. But then I played games where, like, just literally a perfectly cleaned gun can jam randomly. And I thought that was ex- just annoying. Like, I... Yeah. So, like, what can I do to avoid... I'm being punished for nothing I've done. In Far Cry 2, you've shot a, hun- a thousand rounds through this gun. It's about to break. You could plan ahead. There's something I can do to make it so I don't make that mistake. I don't think it's fun when a gun just jams randomly. At, <laughs> just period. I think that's the silliest idea I've ever heard. Now, I don't know. Maybe some people like that. But I would question if you do or if you're just thirsting for anything that isn't the same arcade gameplay. And this is the one game you're playing, you know? Yeah, I mean, I I really appreciate a, a a certain amount of realism in first person shooters, in really shooters as well. I, I I think that really any shooter can benefit from, on some level, an understanding of how guns work and why, mm-hmm. especially on like the art and animation teams. It it is kind of it is kind of annoying when you see a reload yeah. animation. And it's like have you seen this? Have you seen? This <laughs> have you Googled uh, it? I mean, it, come on. <laughs> like, it can't. Gil make a lot of money at insert AAA studio here. You you couldn't get them out to arrange once. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and the sad thing is, well, oftentimes they do. Like, that's mm-hmm. literally a thing that they do. Oh yeah, <laughs> I, I know what you mean. That's there's and and it's funny because you can tell which games were made by people that maybe hired an expert to come in and give some feedback and which get or or not even that which games someone modeling it knew what they were doing like they knew what gun they were modeling like you can tell with the little tweaks then you can tell which games it's just like why did they like a common thing problem i have we're getting in the weeds here but this is actually kind of a discussion i wanted to have with you you know just generally talking about game design philosophies like I hate it in a game when they use one model of a real gun to represent a certain type of, like we're going to make, for example, this is, I think anyone listening to this who plays a lot of modern shooters will know what I mean. There's always a burst gun. 
there's a gun that just fires <laughs> three round burst and that's the burst gun that and they'll choose one gun to be the burst gun that really isn't a three round burst gun nor has any reason to do more damage than the other one and, and i'm getting really in the weeds but i'm going to give an example so like for some reason they'll make the m16 do more damage than an ak-74 or an m4 and that doesn't really make any sense like literally the m4 and the m16 fire the same bullet and and just because it's three round burst, it but there are three round burst guns that fire a bigger caliber bullet. There's models of an FAL that does that. That has been reported by soldiers to be pretty. It's a very popular firearm. It's in most major conflicts. So why didn't you just choose that to be the three round burst gun that does extra damage? Because that one actually does. Like you know, like why does this pistol do double the damage of this pistol when it fires half the caliber bullet in real life? Like. You could have just used a Desert Eagle. Used, you know what I mean? Like yeah. I, that always annoys me to no end as well. Because uh, unfortunately, mankind is doesn't always get along. There are a thousand guns to choose from, and when they choose to just shoehorn some model into something role, it's just it doesn't even do. It's it seems completely unnecessary when there's a real gun that was used in that conflict that you could have just made fill that role anyways. Yeah, I I find. I think that's pretty, that's something I think about a lot too, is that, that there's some strange, strange tropes that simultaneously, as you say, kind of go beyond the bounds of reality, but also kind of pass up opportunities for interesting gameplay mechanics. Yes. Right? Like, select fire in real life doesn't make the game shoot, gun shoot harder. <laughs> that's not... <laughs> That's that's not a thing. Mm-hmm. What it does is can select so much of firing, which in real life there there are more there there's more to it and why you would do that. Like firstly, obviously, like, the save on ammunition, but mm-hmm. also, you know, like full auto isn't always what everyone wants to use all the time. I, mm-hmm. Like, you know, from what limited experience I have and from what I've, from the people that I've talked to, and not, not like I've talked to any actu- actual soldiers, but, you know, the consensus that I've seen is that you generally, you, you would rather put a few accurate bullets than, you know, 30 and then two hit. <laughs> yeah. That's genuinely advantageous and and i feel that that could be an interesting balance gameplay wise you know like which some games do do that they're like no like you're just we're this gun can let you conserve ammo and the others can't uh but then there's a lot of games where they're like like it's the burst gun so now (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah, i just think it's I, i think that a lot of real life gunplay has some interesting dynamics that. If you can find, like, there's an artful amount of realism that can expand on the de- depth of gameplay. And then there's certain ones that can, but you have to know how to balance them within mm-hmm. the game. A lot like the, the jamming argument. And I think uh, that can also apply a lot to things like, you know, armor. There's a lot of different types of armor mm-hmm. that interact with ballistics in a lot of different ways but if you just have it you know in (laughs) in the game 
with it didn't expect everyone to know what all of the 150 different armor types are for yeah. all of the different slots. No one's mm. gonna do that. I think like there was a Rainbow Six game that, that did that. And I found it just <laughs> tedious to play online because it's like, what? I had to know to use this SMG with his vest? Okay, I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> And, well, and the problem is that's also pretty impossible to balance if you just let people decide what vest to wear, because then they're just going to all wear the best one, and now half of the guns in the game might as well not be in it. Yeah. You know, like, you know, so yeah, but maybe if you balanced it correctly, it wouldn't be. Like, there are reasons everyone uses a vest or doesn't use a vest, like, uh, and there's a reason some guns are just worse <laughs> than, <laughs> like, for example, like, I'll just, like, this is something, again, where we're getting a little into the weeds here, but it's like, I think a lot of games struggle with balancing submachine guns to assault rifles, right? Because oh, the assault yeah. rifle fires higher caliber bullets, or certainly no one will argue, maybe not higher caliber, more kinetic energy per shot than a submachine gun. And there's no way around that. They try to like make it, well, you know, in close quarters, this does more damage. It doesn't. An M16 is almost always going to hurt you more than an MP5. It just is going to hurt a lot more. How do you balance that? I've seen almost no game do this. Well, an MP5 mag takes up half the space. So let them carry double the ammo, you know, let it, you know, and maybe in close quarters, it doesn't make enough of a difference that you wouldn't still choose the MP5 most of the time. Or the fact that it has better recoil is why they would do it. Or I've only seen one game do this, I think. And it was Metal Gear Online, where they, it was a third person tactical shooter where they actually had modeled the collision of the different sizes of the weapons going around corners. So if you held a Dragunov sniper rifle, which holds 10 rounds, kills in one or two hits, is semi-auto. In most circumstances, that's really overpowered, actually, if you think about it in a video game. Because it it's a semi-auto gun that fires a bullet twice as big as everyone else's gun. But it actually was five feet long, or whatever it is, four feet long in the game. And so if you try to go around a corner quickly, you would often bump into walls, and your character would like, like do this, and you couldn't shoot them. So no, it, that was half of the reason you would use a P90, is because... I can hold it close to my chest when I go around a corner. And that's a real reason someone might use an MP5 over an M16, because it is more compact. It is not stronger. It does not fire faster. It, there's really no damage per second reason you would use it over an yeah. M16. But it is much lighter. And there are so few games even take that into consideration. And I don't know why, because it makes it way more fun to like, be tactical and decide. And Metal Gear Solid isn't like a milsim either, by the way, but they found a way to make it fun to put something realistic in the game. Yeah, I actually find that quite interesting because, as you say, of machine guns, if you want to do make it realistic and also balance for the other guns, it, it is quite hard because, I mean, ultimately, some machine guns, I haven't even considered a lot of the points you've given. I, I've always just propped it up to, oh, less penetration, less hostages dead. <laughs> <laughs> that, is, But if you're a cop, that is a consideration. But if it's Battlefield, it, you know. It actually, you know, I take that back. A lot of U.S. soldiers actually do worry about that. And the reason is they can shoot through a wall and hit their own allies. Yeah. You know, so there, there is a real consideration to that. I don't think that's fun to put in a game, though, as a consideration. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. It really is a delicate balance because, like, a lot of guns and things that, you know, operators do in real life 
aren't considerations that translate very well into game mechanics like mm-hmm. like not not using a scope because you don't want the 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 glass glare <laughs> now you have to implement glass glare and make that fun <laughs> well and i think something on the subject of scopes that i haven't seen i think almost any game do although i think modern warfare did it kind of a little bit in the single player but as far as i could tell they didn't have this mechanic in the online is they actually rendered a different zoom within the scope compared to your peripheral vision um i don't know if you've noticed this most games when you look at a scope it just zooms in everything around you (laughs) (laughs) it doesn't actually zoom the scope it zooms your field of view and there's a circle in the middle of the screen like like, but that's because then you'd have to render two different things at the same time. You'd have to literally like render a close, a far, a closer zoom in part of the screen. And that's probably really intensive on a graphics card. And that probably you don't want it to be intensive when you're aiming closely because a lower frame rate means it's hard to snipe or something. You know, these are the considerations that go into making a game. But, you know, a reason, the real reason you would just not use a scope maybe is because it's not effective close quarters. You just, it's, I, you're, I'm zooming, I can see your pimple. I can't, you know, <laughs> if I zoom in, it's, it's, you can't acquire targets fast. So very few games, you know, seem to do that well as well, I would say. Yeah, I, I think that's something that I've noticed a lot is games where like the meta is, I'm going to get a, a machine gun and put a scope on it like that. No. <laughs> please don't do that (laughs) don't make me do that well you know that's the funny thing is it depends on the submachine gun too is because what they'll often do then is just dumb them down so much at long range um that eh, actually an mp5 has a 200 yard range i don't know if you've measured 200 yards it's pretty far (laughs) um but i mean i'm trying backing up here though I guess, let me move the conversation forward because I could actually talk about this forever because I've never had a chance to. Um, (laughs) Like shooting mechanics that I just just think people overlook. Um, Oh man, you should have brought this up with my dad. (laughs) Oh really? Yeah. Oh man, well he can listen to it. But um, let let me ask you this though. What type of games do you want to make the most? It sounds like you've thought about guns a decent amount. Like is your ideal... If you were to be put on a AAA team with a lot of not just hands-on work into the game being made, but maybe some of the decision-making, like I get to decide some of these decisions. Like, do you want to work on a sword fighting game, a more, I don't know, hand-to-hand focused open world game, racing games, fighter games, games that involve all these (laughs) things at the same time? You know, like, what is your, the ideal type of game you'd like to work on? Well, for a team that I get to lead, I mean, I, I really am interested in a lot of things. I, I mostly just want to make games and make people feel things that they didn't before. Make make people, you know, empathize. I, I think that's something that games are very good at. That some me- mediums have to try very hard to do. Basically, I think I would really like to make games with a narrative focus Mm -hmm. and in terms of genre you can do that with just about any set of mechanics i i mostly just i I mostly just care about about the user experience more than you know what what that specifically entails 
So you'd like to have a lot of direct control over some of the user experience decisions for a narrative focused game. You know, I'm trying to think of, you know, like something like an example that it just comes to mind immediately, something like The Last of Us or Control is really a narrative focused game. Like it's a single player, pretty driven, like focused experience, like something like that is what you're saying. Yeah. You're not like an online shooter or, um, or, and I met, do you imagine it would be a shooter or would you be more interested in it being a hand-to-hand combat or sword fighting game like Demon Souls or something? Honestly, I mean, that would depend a lot on the team. Mm-hmm. I guess that also depend on the story we're telling. But the story we're telling is supposed to be about the mechanics we chose. Personally, I would just let my level designers prototype what they feel would be good. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, let them come up with something. It sounds like um, once you're thinking about making a game for other people to play, it's less about what you would think is fun and what you want to make that's interesting. Is that, uh, that's the vibe I'm kind of getting is it's like, I'm not making this for me to play it necessarily. I'm trying to make a good game. Maybe other people will like to play it more than me. I don't really care if it's a specific type of genre I'm used to playing. I mean, yeah, that's exactly how I feel. Like, I I can't make a game for me to play. I made it. (laughs) I know what's in it. Mm -hmm. I know what's coming. True. The thing is, you know, but I know what I want people to feel. I know some ways to get people to feel that way. So normally that's how things start is making a prototype as a means to communicate an idea. All right, let me shift gears here to this question. So Laws writes in, he says, Hi, Zach. I often give feedback and suggestions for early access games I like, and I wonder if you could talk about what it is like receiving feedback. Even if I like a game, I still tend to not mention the positives, unfortunately, but I focus on things that could be improved. Uh, A review is an exception, I suppose. And I wonder if I just always come off as negative. The logic is this. A good finished feature may go completely unnoticed. Even if it is noticed, it feels more useful to discuss the next thing to improve rather than discussing a finished feature. What kind of feedback is useful to you? What can I do to make the feedback better? All right. Well, this is this is an important thing in game development. Like, you know, in a studio, whether we're talking about a professional setting or, you know, co- co-workers talking to each other or like heck even just a personal project like this or eh, like what i do (laughs) Mm -hmm. um it's game developers already are pretty succinct in how they communicate feedback amongst themselves like if you're in a studio a lot of people aren't going to go hey you're amazing everything you do is great this is awesome and i love it but here's the thing i need you to know <laughs> mm-hmm. right like we know you're awesome you're here <laughs> we hired you, <laughs> you yeah. hired and we you haven't fired you yet <laughs> yeah yeah so you know a lot of what goes into it is being able to give good quick and concise feedback and you know, explaining how things can be fixed, or Erickson, why you think, think so, and also being able to, to take large amounts of criticism throughout a day. <laughs> so, ultimately, I guess what I'm trying to say is any kind of feedback is useful to me. I 
I, I don't even care if it's constructive. Basically, anything is something that I can take and do something with. Not necessarily that all feedback should directly translate into specific change, but everything has a use. In terms of how to make the feedback better, hmm. ultimately, whether or not it sounds negative, I think, hmm. I think that has a lot of a lot to do with delivery. I don't. Mm -hmm. If you're good at taking feedback, simply receiving negative feedback shouldn't be the thing. It should be more so like you know, being respectful when you're saying it. But in terms of actually making the feedback better, I think mostly what you can do is, you know, respectfully mention the problems you've had and how, and, you know, tr try to explain why it is you think that or why this was a, was a problem for you. Like, you know, something along the lines of it looks bad might not be the most helpful thing. It's mm. still useful because, you know, you can look into that. But if you can go more into specifics, like, you know, this room looks more cluttered than it ought to be. Or, or you know, the art on the cover is anatomically incorrect. <laughs> Your main character looks like a, a car crash victim. That, that's... You can do more with that. <laughs> so, you know, ultimately, I, I, the last thing you should do is feel scared to give feedback. Ultimately, as long as you're being respectful, it should not really be a problem. And if it becomes a problem, I, I mean, developers are supposed to be able to withstand feedback. That's just the thing you have to be able to do. You can't survive in this world without being able to You're not going to get any better unless you can get feedback. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, like, specifically one thing I would say that's starting to come to mind here is just make sure you're saying the actual problem you have. Yeah. Like, maybe they've changed some mechanic in a sequel to a game, and, you're, and, and you're, if your feedback is, I don't like it, <laughs> what about don't you like it? Because it might not actually be as broken as you think. Uh, and an example I will give right now is I've been playing a ton of Battlefield 2042 over Thanksgiving break. And for, again, for those listening, I, it needs work, but I'm playing it every day for hours. So I like it. <laughs> That's really all I can say is I have more fun playing this than other shooters. So flawed as it might be, is, uh, even though it might have some bugs, I'm certainly coming back to it over and over. One problem I see a lot of people bringing up from the beginning that I don't feel like enough people have succinctly said, which if I think some people who play at Dice may listen to this podcast, please listen to this part. I don't think the specialist system is bad. And I see a lot of people saying, I don't like that they got rid of the class system and made specialists. Well, if you actually look at what the specialists are, it's just a different person that has a special ability. Some of these abilities for some of the specialists are reviving people with full health or, you know, deploying a turret to support allies. So that's basically a class. I don't think the specialist system is broken. Mm -hmm. I think they need to organize it into classes. It's already a class system. They just need to make it less tedious to choose one. They need to make it so that 
maybe some specialists are grouped into categories with other similar medic ones and they can't maybe use one thing so that you have people using more repair tools, for example, you know, to give an example. Like, it's like, but if all you do is say the specialist system is broken, it's like, nah, they really just made the class system more customizable. They should a really bad job of making that clear or easy to customize. But it's really, there's still a class system, you know? And I think, I don't know, if, you know, I, I don't think you played that game, but I think that maybe will resonate as an example of actually telling them what's wrong, not just saying you're unhappy. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I, or at least I hope I agree with that. I haven't played yeah, the game. Yeah, you played the game, so. <laughs> but yeah, that, that sounds like it resonates. I am proud to say that Vite Ramen is a sponsor of Moore's Laws Dead. The Vite Ramen Company is an American company that pays its workers fair wages and engineered a tasty, healthy, and cheap meal that you can cook in less than five minutes. And these meals just got tastier with their updated version three of their ramen recipe. Meals aren't really healthy unless you keep coming back to eat the healthy ones. And that's what they've done with these updates to version three. Now is the best time to order some some Vite Ramen. So if you're busy, hungry, or just looking for a pre-made meal that isn't expensive, get some nudes sent to you. Click the link in the description and use the code BROKENSILICON to save 10% on your order. This helps me, this saves you money, and this supports a good company. Buy Vite Ramen today. Let me see here. So authority, and he says authority like Cartman from South Park. Authority. Authorta writes in and says, Hey, Tom and Zach, having built a 2D shooter game engine and various mods and small projects over the years, I've considered solo game development myself. However, there seem to be a lot of practical problems. <laughs> How do I fund the development period where the game isn't making money? How do I market the game since that's one of the most important considerations in such a saturated industry? And finally, how do I maintain my own interest in such a multidisciplinary process when I only enjoy a subset of the work? Programming and game design in my case, art, animation, sound design, and UI design are other facets that come to mind. What are your thoughts on these challenges? And do any of those things I brought up resonate with things you've had to deal with? Best of luck, and I'll keep an eye out for your studio. Cheers to you both. The first two questions definitely resonate with me. These are things that I've struggled with myself. Of, and, you know, obviously, I, I don't have perfect answers <laughs> for it. Mm, I don't think anyone like, does. Yeah, because yeah, like if, if I if I knew how to market games perfectly and I made a million dollars, I wouldn't tell you. I would be a greedy little gremlin like all the other ones. Um, <laughs> you know, like basically anyone that goes onto the internet and is like, I succeeded. I can tell you exactly how to succeed. Buy my book, my <laughs> merch, my shirt, and my coffee mug. That's yeah, that nice. all those all, all those successful stock traders giving advice on CNBC instead of trading the stocks themselves, right? Oh yeah. So basically, firstly, this is something that I've been told as as a thing. Uh, sometimes, seems what you might want to consider is you know going with a publisher. There's some good indie centric publishers out there that that I've been recommended. You know, humble games is pretty good. Mm -hmm. I, I will say, uh, obviously, I'm I'm no I'm not a lawyer, nor am I your lawyer. So, <laughs> you know, I, I'm like I'm not going to tell you here's here's what you should do from a legal standpoint. 
and I take no liability. But <laughs> I will say, if if anyone does go down the route, there there's a book that a textbook that I had to read for that legal thing in my community college. It's called Business and Legal Primary for Game Development. It's an old one. It still mentions MySpace, so don't stop there. <laughs> but there's a part in the back where it'll go over publishing deals and like you know the different types of advances and stuff. It it's a good read, a dry read, not not the best read, but it's a useful one. <laughs> I like it. It's a utilitarian <laughs> yeah. read for your future. Yeah. Yeah. But basically, there's some pitfalls. You should avoid there, obviously, knowing what rights you're giving away and not. You know, there are different types of advances. That's why I'm going over advances. It's because I think that can be an answer to the first question. Is that, you know, a lot of publishers will straight up give you money mm. up front to develop the game that they're publishing. Thing is, sometimes these advancements have to be paid back, and if you don't make mm. the amount of money, you have to pay for them. Other yeah. other ones, you don't. So go for those. <laughs> I, and ultimately, you should probably. I I, I don't know if you even have if this is even like there there are lawyer. I don't know if there are lawyers for this, but if there are, get a lawyer to read any agreement you're going to sign. And if that's not how it works, because <laughs> I've never signed a publishing agreement, um, uh, you know, and oh, fine. Try to get getting good with someone who knows what they're doing and get their help with it. Basically, that's that's one way you can go about that, right? That's one way that you mm -hmm. can go about development and marketing. But additionally, of course, there there are other ways to get. It, development money. I'm pretty sure Canada has funds for games now, if I remember correctly. I'm sure there's always bank loans and crowdfunding, but of course, crowdfunding doesn't work if no one knows what the game is. So I don't know if I if that's a great recommendation. <laughs> yeah, and I think a pitfall of crowdfunding is the same pitfall <laughs> of getting an advance from a publisher is how did you get that advance did you make the first level and you're already well into development and so you know you can finish yeah. it and you have already started and proved it and that's why they're giving you money up front or are you just being given money and then you're like ah i'm sure i can figure it out because what if you don't you mm -hmm. know what if it if it turns into much more than you expected it to turn into. Like, are you going to be able to make, are you going to be able to deliver what you said you would be able to for the amount of money you were given? Are you sure you are? You know, yeah. like, and frankly, you've made games without any funding. So why can't <laughs> you start the game without funding? Uh, yeah. I'll just ask the hard question. You know, why can't you start it? Honestly, you absolutely can. Like, there are plenty of ga game developers out there making indie games either you know as a side project while they're doing a triple a job or mm -hmm. you know while they're a, a valet at a movie theater like the stardew valley guy i was gonna say the stardew valley guy yeah. made his own game and he's done quite well from that i think a lot of people and some of the questions we've been asked today are like well how do i get good at doing all this how do i keep my interest in getting good at this part of making the game I don't like. And I would say, you look at Stardew Valley, the guy made something he knew he could make 
and that he liked making, maybe you need to scale back your your ambition <laughs> for yeah. the first game you make, you know? It's pretty rare the first thing you make is a magnum opus. Yeah, like, I suppose it goes into something else I'm going to say is, you know, maybe is you know don't don't look at this like you want to be the stardew valley guy either like most people aren't going yeah, to be almost no one ever makes a lot of money that's <laughs> that yeah. also should not be you know the main goal ultimately i i just want to make games that make people happy if i can't do that then i have no business making games hopefully i have succeeded in make some Actually, no, no, not hopefully. I have watched people smile while making my game. I can do it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Laz writes in and he says, I have a bit of a weird question, which may even be a bit controversial, but we'll Ooh. be the judge of that, Laz. There are some <laughs> mods I'd like to see for my own enjoyment, which sound doable to me, even if a bit ambitious. However, those mods don't exist. I'm considering learning modding just to make the mods I want but I'm a bit wary this might be a huge time sink. I mean, it, it's going to be. Yeah. Says, I, may, <laughs> I may also find after learning to mod that actually my ideas aren't so easy to make as I thought they were. Is my best bet to just spend the time to learn to mod or could I throw some money at my problem to get either guidance or results from someone more experienced? While paid mods are controversial, I also can't expect a modder to work on my ideas for hours for free. Uh, so I, I'm going to step in. I think the second option, who do you know him personally? Cause I always <laughs> worry about sending and he says 200 pounds, you know, sending 200 pounds to someone over the internet that I don't know personally. And even some people I know personally, I don't know if I trust them, mm. you know? So like, just make, you know, again, it's with this advanced thing. It's like, you just, if you give him the money, he just has it now, whether he does anything or not. But yeah, um, like, I don't know if you can speak to his questions or how much you want hmm. to. Honestly, I, I personally don't have any modding experience, but I, I will say this is a, a question that I can approach multiple ways. Um, Basically, on one hand, obviously being a game developer Anything that's going to get you into game development, I'm I'm going to manipulate you into going into. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. I, I know personally that it's a fulfilling thing to do with your time. So e even if you fail at getting to this large scope thing that you want, you know, e even just the self-satisfaction of doing it might be good enough. On the other hand, it, it kind of sounds like you just kind of want to play with the thing you want and that's that's fine too that doesn't cost you so, anything except yeah. for some time it, but if it's fun for you yeah like you know like learn the basics of how to mod whatever game it is you you want to mod and if you get to a point where you can actually play around with it and have fun with it do that but if you just want you know uh dante from the devil may cry series running around in skyrim you know if you can, or whatever the mod is, it didn't say. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna assume it was that, because that's funny to me. Um, if that's all you want, and you can find a decent contractor to do that, I I say pay for the mod. Per mm -hmm. Personally, it, it kind of sound. I, I I know you say that paid mods are controversial, but this kind of sounds different than that. This sounds like a specific commission more so than. Here's the mod that I made. Everyone pay 50 bucks for it. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it, it sounds like a nuanced, indifferent argument, or not argument, mm-hmm. question, a, a different topic. Then, then, <laughs> then, like, yeah, and <laughs> and and you know, I I I find always that topic of like, should we have to pay for this? Should we have to pay for that? I think the answer is always, well, only if you do. You know? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, some mods. I don't have a problem if they charge for them. I yeah. might not buy it though. And like, if you have an objection to that, okay, don't buy it. You voted. <laughs> mm-hmm. Let me move on to this question here. Be awesome writes in. He says, I have an eight year old son that has been into building games since he was two or three. Games like Little Big Planet 2 and 3, Roblox, Mario Maker 1 and 2, Dreams to a lesser extent. Oh my God, someone who actually plays Dreams hey. and Nintendo Garage. He also has also expressed interest in wanting to be a game designer eventually. At what age do you think you really started to get seriously into game design? And what were some of the early game software or learning materials you used that you really felt uh, really jump-started you into this direction? We're pretty sure he has ADHD, and being only eight, it is hard to keep his attention on anything overly text-based for too long. Well, I mean, I would say I have ADHD, and... Honestly, depending on the text, it wasn't hard for me so much as I was a little boy. I don't think <laughs> little boys like reading that much. Usually. Although some do. I actually, there are some things I loved reading. I just point that out because actually for me when I was younger and continuing to this day, my brain's always racing because I have ADHD. Video games, it's not. It's like a break from my brain racing. And that's why I think people with ADHD like video games. They just suck you in so much. Your brain actually slows down a bit and stops switching channels. I mean, I I wouldn't, that's all I want to say though, is I wouldn't assume because he's not reading a lot. It might be because he's, you know, like five or six years old. But anyways, because I've started to do a little bit of Python with him to give a little context into programming, what are some suggestions you may have for a kid that will want to work towards game development? Firstly, I'm happy to see this question. Secondly, um, uh, in terms of when I really started to get seriously into it, I, I would say probably about high school, well, like my third year, because like, you know, the high school I went to had a program with mm. the college I went into later. So I was taking college classes in high school for game development. So, you know, obviously the approach that I took was structured and very it wasn't entirely you know like do it yourself it, it, of course it was do it myself you know I, I learned the thing of course but you know personally i i liked the structure that that the school provided in, in terms of there they you know they they taught me very basics with photoshop and uni maybe not the very basis because of course i had some uni experience before going in but you know like that helped me get through there i don't know i i i doubt you have that exact school near you so i i can't really tell you here's exactly what to do but if there are some kind of like if there are some kind of boot camps around you Mm -hmm. you might want to try them out because you know obviously I, i mean i can't I can't prop my my enjoyment of learning with structure to 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 you know like some thing that I have right. That's not fair. But you know if it might be something you might want to try if if like the casual stuff isn't sticking. Yeah, I mean, like, cause it, it, it you know, 
you, you, I think you see a lot of similarities in what this kid is doing and what you did. And it's like, I think he's probably going to find things to work on for fun that are creative on his own without any help. Yeah. You're just saying as soon as you can get him into these boot camps and structures that make it more formalized, it, it, like if you can, right? Because yeah. that'll uh, kind of, but shall I say, buttress it into a more professional direction sooner. Yeah. Also, don't force them to do that by any means. Mm. Make sure it's something they're actually passionate about. It's not <laughs> the the last thing you want is, hey, this fun, creative thing. Oh, my God, I dread it. <laughs> right. <laughs> You know, and I guess my parents never really did that with me, as as you could probably tell from us talking earlier on. I did a lot of level editors, uh, things in Little Big Planet, uh, some of the similar stuff to you. And my parents bought me some books about programming. I just never really actually wanted to do the programming. (laughs) But you did. And that's why you're doing this, right? You know, I wanted the creative part of it. And I played video games. Then I just went into engineering. I I would would 100% agree. You know, maybe he he want he probably wants to do it, but just make sure you don't ruin the fun early. Yeah, right? exactly. Like if they're in their comfort zone in something smaller, you know that might be a sign that you know, like you might that might be them having their experience that inspires them to get more serious later on. Like you know, when I was a kid, playing Little Big Planet and stuff, and my dad would come in and be like. Hey, you know, you know, other things exist, you know, that that didn't inspire me to immediately drop those things and learn three is max or something, you know, that inspired me to do that later and continue having fun at that moment. That's a very, yeah, that's such a good way to put it and continue having fun at that moment while knowing where to go next. Yeah, that's very well said. My good sir. Yeah. Um, a final subject, I guess I ca- want to jump into here. If we have a little bit of time, because this is typically a gaming hardware podcast, but I certainly don't mind talking to guests that use the hardware. Uh, Spamton G. Spamton. Oh writes my in, God, that's an amazing name. <laughs> I don't actually understand the reference. What is that? It's from Deltarune Chapter 2. Okay. I don't know what that <laughs> is. I'm just going to be honest unfortunately, but he says, do you see implementing ray tracing in technologies like FSR, DLSS, and XE super sampling into your games? How do you think little cores, heterogeneous CPU architectures, you know, that are in Alder Lake with Big Little will benefit games? So it's just, I guess, and I want to kind of catch all this into a general question, like all of the, there's a lot of newer things coming out now, whether it's different ways of, Maybe not smoothing out, but sharpening the picture, whether it's through DLSS or just more general algorithm based like FSR, you know, new types of CPU architectures, there's new types of storage, I mean, you know, that we're seeing emerge. Um, How do you think these are going to benefit games over the next, I don't know, 10 years? Like, how are things going to change from here? All right. Well, I don't know when Spamton went from sales to IT, but I'm all for it, (laughs) firstly. Secondly, I'll admit I'm not the biggest hardware guy, but mm-hmm. multi-core systems seem really cool. Like having specific cores for, you know, specific tasks, having a low power for like, uh, like web browsing or whatever, and then having another one and for like specifically artificial intelligence or some, something like I, I can see people doing a lot of that. And I'm pretty excited for it. 
and I, I feel like having specific cores for specific functions could allow games to do quite a lot more with these specifics. You mm -hmm. know, like I, I'm excited to see what developers can do with an entire core at their disposal for any given thing. But at the same time, I mean, I guess that could probably bring up some other concerns with optimization for single cord PCs because. I mean, like we we've seen with ray tracing, not everyone has an RTX. So mm -hmm. you know, how can you balance? How can you balance? Like, you know, using this hardware for all that's worth, but also not having that much worse of an experience for people that don't have a, a space shuttle in, in their bedroom, <laughs> or or no experience at all. Yeah. yeah. Well. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I, there's a lot of directions you could go with that. I mean, when it comes to ray tracing, I just don't think it's going to be a major issue moving for a little bit because if we're being honest, it's still just extra effects they're bolting onto rasterization right now. Yeah. So it's not like there's any worry. How do you solve that problem? You don't turn on ray tracing with these older graphics cards. That's how you solve problem solved. Um, moving forward, I, I think by the time ray tracing will be optimized and good enough and effective enough at actually making the scene better, not just making some things look like Chrome. I think by the time devs have really mastered ray tracing, all cards that are basically used will be capable of it, if that yeah. makes any sense, because they certainly don't think that they've mastered it yet. Um, when it comes to the big little discussion, though, I am curious if you can give any insight into like what it would be useful for, because right now they're already scheduling threads to the cores that clock the fastest. And, you know, you know like that's what Ryzen's already doing before we have different core types. Like, like how, I don't, I don't know how much you can speak to, how much you think it would help to have maybe just, because this is really what they are in Alder Lake and in, from Intel. How much like the little cores help with a specific task? They're really good at multi-threaded parallel stuff that needs to be precise. But if you were to just throw random things to them, they're not as good as the big cores, right? Like uh, typical programming. Like, uh, how, like what task do you think that's going to help with? And, and just to give you an idea of where, I, where, where we should be going, like right now, Intel has eight big cores and eight little cores. Next year, they'll have eight big cores that are 10% better than their current ones, but then they're going to double the amount of little cores to 16 cores. And there's rumors they could double them again the following year, like literally going on this trajectory of just 10 to 20% bigger big cores every year, but only eight of them. And then eventually having systems with like 30 to 64 little cores. <laughs> like what, what would that help with in your experience? Hmm. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll be, I'll be honest. I haven't really had to, specifically mm -hmm. you know assign things to cores thankfully you know like th thankfully for me a, a lot of what i do programming wise i don't have to deal that much with that stuff but i i do i do think that really most of what i, what I had to say about that kind of goes into what i was already saying like with more little cores at I, I would assume with more little cores at your disposal, you would be able to use them a lot more for specific tasks, which would allow us to, you know, make those systems more, more in depth. So, mm -hmm. yeah, 
So I'm I'm definitely all for that. I obviously, like I said, I'm not like the biggest hardware guy, but you know, mm-hmm. at the very least, I know what a core is. <laughs> well, yeah, and I, I think that's something people requires. forget, right? Like, like there's usually someone in a studio that's deciding the hardware targets, and then there's another person optimizing the hardware, yeah. and then there's a person programming. Now, obviously, you have to make sure your code isn't inefficient, right? right. Or, 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 but you're not the one making sure it's parked to specific cores, really, are you? When you make a game, like there's like most of the programmers aren't worrying about that, or are they? I honestly hmm. don't know. Well, I mean, that absolutely depends on what you're programming, as well as what language you're using, like. You know, like you you can, there are definitely instances where you would be dealing with threads, right? But mm-hmm. like that, I'm pretty sure that's be- more so for like long-term, larger processes, you know, like. I, I, like building an engine itself I, or. I, I guess. Uh, I, I know that like there's threading in terms of programming, but I, I want. I want to say I've actually gotten that mixed up. I don't know if that deals with actual like APU threads or if that's just threads is a separate thing. I mean, <laughs> I, I, to be honest, I don't know what you what question you just asked me. You know, there's I, just threads. And there's a million ways there can be a thread. There's yeah. just a big core with two threads, maybe <laughs> a big core with four threads that kind of feed the code in a you know from four. Uh, I don't want to get into explaining it because I'll mess it up even. And then, you know, then there's just the little cores that might have hyper-threading, might not. There's all different ways you can organize (laughs) threading in a CPU these days. Um, I I guess I'm wondering then what, just to move forward, what the next, what the big effect is then. It didn't seem like you have that much to say about ray tracing or that much to say about things like DLSS, but like all of these different technologies we're talking about, the increases in core counts, blazing fast SSDs, different types of rendering, like what, what's going to be the biggest deal to developers over the next 10 years, either for making it easier to make a game or for enhancing the experience? Hmm. Well, I mean, uh, obviously I think all of those can do that to a certain extent. I'm not necessarily going to say one of them is going to have more of an impact than another because I don't know that. But <laughs> I will say that if we can get these optimized and to the point where everyone can use them all the time, I, I think they have a long laundry list of uses. Like ray tracing currently, like the the usefulness of it compared to how, mu- how resource intensive it is compared to your average computer, yeah, mm-hmm. I think is not necessarily that useful as much as it is a fun tech demo for those that can enjoy it. Like, yeah, like in terms of reflection stuff, we've made a lot of, we've had to do that for years and years, (laughs) like without ray tracing, like everything from just reflection Mm -hmm. mass to straight up rendering two versions of the game world to show one of them in a puddle. People have had to do this before. And I'm, and like, honestly, that that doesn't mean that ray tracing doesn't have a use. I, I mean, it, we've uh, obviously you want it. It's helpful to have things done in real time. You can have environments that are randomly generated, so you can't. Mm, so yeah, you would have true. to either somehow bake that stuff in real time, bake in real time, or like you know, as you're randomly generating it, perhaps recast 
Esting would be a a fun solution for that. Yeah, I think the more I look at ray tracing, the more I think it's going to eventually, in combination with a standardization of really powerful graphics cards that can do it at least okay, and all of these like resolution smoothing, to, uh, again, it's not resolution smoothing, but um, shall we say frame rate boosting techniques we have yeah. at high resolutions like a DLSS FSR and XE super sampling soon. I think in ray tracing with conjunction to that, those things are going to make it easier for dev in more indie devs and even double-A devs to do games that look as good as the best-looking games now at all. Like, Because the problem is, if you try to make a good-looking game as a solo indie dev, it's like, I don't have... Like, Red Dead Redemption 2, li they literally had six horse artists. That's all they did. <laughs> they had six people in their studio that made the horses look good. You know... It, there's so much work that goes into pre-baking lighting and making things look good that the more you can just throw it at it and it looks at least as good as other stuff, that's where it's going to help. In terms of realistic graphics, I, we, I think we can do photorealism right now without ray tracing. We don't need it. And I think AAA devs for a very long time are going to actually use pre-baked lighting more than ray tracing. In fact, I will say a controversial opinion for everyone listening. I think ray tracing is going to be more of a sign that your studio doesn't have a lot of money than the other way around eventually. Because if you can afford to do pre-baked lighting, it just uses less resources, right, in the game. The game will look better at a higher frame rate, but you need to have someone doing that, which smaller devs can't afford to do. I think to an extent, I, I might agree with that. It's a very controversial opinion because they're trying to make ray tracing out like this big enthusiast thing. It's more of a indie dev thing. If you're a big studio, you should be doing pre-baked lighting because it just looks better, man. Like I don't, I don't have to tell you. It's and it's probably it already can look photorealistic. So this argument of like, you know, ray tracing is gonna do what? It looks photorealistic now, man. It just takes a lot of work, <laughs> and there are some things that aren't worth pre-baking. So they will do some ray tracing, but like a fully ray traced game, I think more and more is going to be more about, yeah, it's an indie game. Of course it is, you know? Yeah, I, I think that's a pretty good argument. I, it's something that I agree with because, like, you know, ultimately, ultimately in a game studio, what it should be is not, you know, this tool is better than this tool. And I will only use this one tool over this other. No, use mm -hmm. the tools you have at your disposal to make the best looking game. That That's not... That's not a choice. That's what you have to do. That's what your job is. <laughs> yeah, and I just, I just think, yeah, that ray tracing at least lets them even able to attempt to make it. <laughs> you yeah. know, instead of making these games that look like Half Life Two, still, yeah, they'll make games that look like maybe not the latest Battlefield, but the previous one, and they were a team of ten or twenty people. Like that, that's what I'm excited about because I think that's when you're going to get back to a lot more, as we were discussing earlier, experimentation with different types of realism or not realism, and less of these safe bets of like, well, Fortnite was successful, so we better make our game just like Fortnite, oh, you know. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I guess that's all I really had to talk about there. I did want to probe you a little bit on if you could talk about your thoughts on upcoming hardware and all that stuff. Um, I don't know. Is there, is there anything else you wanted to talk about before, uh, I let you go? You've already been with me for a while here. Uh, well, I mean, I, I, I guess not specifically. 
we, we've certainly gone long enough. So what I will then do is, uh, why don't you plug your plug, do some plugs, Ooh, tell people right. where they can find you, where they can get your games, where they can follow you. All right. Well, well, the thing is, this is, I'm all right. So my studio is stuck in noir. I have a, an itch.io page. My, the project I'm working on right now is live on itch.io. So if you look up Duck Noir or, you know, the name of the game, Supercar Fire Jet with a Machine Gun on there, you'll be able to find it quite easily. And it's in pre-alpha, so it's free. You can just kind of download it. Um, basically, it's kind of a rhythm top-down shooting game. So, you know, the obstacles and stuff will come to the beat of the song that's playing. Yeah, I'm mm-hmm. completely solo dev, so all the, the music and, you know, everything is me. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's it's also got kind of a racing aesthetic. So, like, it's a, this is a weird pitch, but, <laughs> like, the the game... No, I played it. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a rhythm-based kind of, like, racing ship game where stuff comes at a rhythm, right? Yeah. And then there's bosses that appear with goofy character types, right? Right. Give it a try, guys. Yeah. <laughs> try it, please. I'm begging you. I'm crying. <laughs> well, I'll have a link to the description, so you don't need to cry. There will be a link <laughs> in the description, you know, so people can try it out if they want to. Um, otherwise, um, I would just say, you know, uh, again, you know, thank you, Zach, for coming on. I thought this was an interesting thank angle for me. our, yeah, for our listeners. And uh, thank you to all the listeners themselves for listening. Yeah. Goodbye, everybody. This podcast was brought to you by the YouTube channel and website Moore's Law is Dead. Moore's Law is Dead and Broken Silicon are trademarks of their creator, Tom. That guy is me, and I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Law is Dead podcast videos, articles, and other media. However, I don't do this alone. Moore's Law is Dead is a team with Broken Silicon co-hosted by my brother, Dan. Audio editing by Gerard Cortez and special assistance by Carbon Cry. Find all of our information, including the information of sponsors you can support, at www.moreslawsdead.com. If you would like to send fan mail or hardware to us, please mail parcels to Moore's Laws Dead at P.O. Box 60632 in Nashville, Tennessee, zip code 37206. And speaking of fans, Patrons are what makes Moore's Laws Dead content possible. The aging business model of spamming ads all over the content is dying. The future of media will be built on fans paying for the content they actually want to exist. And so if you have the extra money, but only if you do, please consider supporting us. For just $2 a month, you get access to the exclusive podcast Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to have your questions read aloud on Broken Silicon, Die Shrink, and Loose Ends, and of course, access to the Moore's Laws Dead Discord full of like-minded people who would love to meet you and talk to you about computer hardware. I am one of them. Additionally, higher tiers get access to ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon, the entire back catalog of Flyover State's podcasts and other projects, Moore's Laws that is done, and thanks in the credits of videos and other perks as well. And hey, if you can't afford to support us, please do share Moore's Laws Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family on social media, Reddit, and forums. And give Broken Silicon a five-star review on Apple Podcast or your preferred podcast app. All of this really does help so much. And if you'd like to advertise on the podcast, hire Tom for consulting, or are a person of interest who would like to be a guest, please reach out to the email address mlhbdead 
at gmail.com. But as I said, this podcast would not be possible without its patrons supporting it. And so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher producer levels. Brad Medlin, Telos, GUK, Benny Berlin, Justin Yacht, Thomas Rupp, I love you, Lyndon Jim, Ivan K, Tom Bailey, Muhammad Akawari, Frederick Lau, MetroCore, Justin Paris, Zachary Martin, Terrence Harrod, Drada Full, Phil S, D31337 Antics, Jackson A. Miller, Jesse Jess Kowiak, Josh Law, JBG, Travis Goody, the Mechanical Philosopher, Lee Will Kinkilo, Fatboy Deseru, Daniel Hyde, a guy in PA81, Nathan Mose, Cole Addict, Matt Salem, Aaron Close, F7GOS, Matthew Landavazo, my name is nobody, Judson N, Alethros, Jensen Wang, hey, there's a Kitty, Greg T. Wanchik, Rentaro Matsukata, John Jameson, Sam Vensel, Matthew Lane, Mark Raidmaker, Jan Rauner, Chris Licata, Michael McGee, Meyer Techrance, Eric Jackson, Jonathan, Patrick Groh, Evan Dingle, Dominique Cox, Stefan, Original Ross, Anthony Gareffa, Joachim Hagen, Teak Autumn, Sol Connor, Michael Casa, Andrew S., Z Jits, Aaron Keith, Gregory S. Acker, Endless Loggins, Tom Sanfilippo, Justice Brennan, Zutsu Taylor, Trevor Powers, Stu. Elena, Nana, Daniel Nishval, Franco Frederick, Dane Galinowski, Ian Clifford, Axel Cisneros, Leighton Perry, Joseph Kierman, Brett Summers, Blake, Denovan Russell, Noah Nicoella, Zlicky, Matt and Porsche, David Cowden, Ricky Tan, Hulam, Patrick J.S., Justin Staples, Freddie Canoas Jr., Stephen Coates, Kiwi Phil, Bruto, Jeremy Show, Mitchell Pell, Brett Summers, Eddie Del Castillo, Joseph Loria, Luis Correa, Deke, Cheesy Ramen, Tyler Lindley, Tim Robbins, Jake Dude 23, Brian Riggleman, Justin Gower, Caillou, Mark Kelly, Dave McCoy, Valko Malev, Gabe Langner, Ronnie, DNA Tech, Michael Deaton, MJB1, Maurice Courtois, Wesley Sager, Sarcastro, My Sharona, Y Truy, Roman, w- William W. Draper, Air Rats, Spamton, G. Spamton. Henry Zhang, Stephen Hart, Christopher A. Butler, Greg, Peter Moore, Amy Will Chief, Justin Thomas, Sam Miller, Sammy Malas, James Anderson, Shakir, Nick Reagan, Holden Mobley, Matthew Lazier, R. Pete Chaba, Meet and Pork, Jimmy NG, Mads, Gordon Freeman, Benjamin Oshley, Mark Mitchell, Shield TV, Couteau, Aaron, John Wissink, Mohammed, John DeBunt, Post Media, Sean Ashmont, Daniel Dewar, Stephen Chang, JSMMH, Georgie Kostandinov, PC Beast 22, Reginald Ari, Narathiel, Ivan, Charles Russell, Hal Buma, and of course, thank you to Zahara for the music. <laughs>